Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. I am welcoming Dr. Shafali Sabari as the guest expert on today's episode. Dr. Shafali received her doctorate in clinical psychology from Columbia University. She is an expert in family dynamics and personal development, teaching courses around the globe. She has written four books, three of which are New York Times bestsellers, including her two landmark books, The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. Dr. Shafali's groundbreaking approach to mindful living and parenting, as well as her blend of clinical psychology and Eastern mindfulness, set her apart as a leader in the field of mindfulness psychology. Last spring, Dr. Shafali published a new book called A Radical Awakening, Turn Pain into Power, Embrace Your Truth, Live Free, which we will be focusing on in this conversation. I have been a huge fan of Dr. Shafali's work ever since my best friend Allie told me about her years ago when we were both young mothers. I have always appreciated Dr. Shafali's depth and her clarity. And this new book, A Radical Awakening, is a provocative and important read for all women and for the people who love them. Dr. Shafali challenges us to really examine the messages we have been internalizing about what it is to be a girl and a woman our entire lives. Messages from our families, from our culture, from the media, and how we end up colluding with those messages in ways that are so disempowering. I suspect that you are going to feel ebbs and flows of all kinds of emotions as you listen in on our conversation. Notice and breathe. I know I find the part of our conversation about the institution of marriage to be especially thought-provoking and especially emotion-provoking. I hope that you will resist the urge to foreclose on being either pro-marriage or anti-marriage and instead reflect on the conversation with an open mind. Hello, Dr. Shafali. It is such a treat to have this chance to connect with you. 
Oh, same here. So happy to be here. You know, I have been following your work and a huge fan of your work since The Conscious Parent came out in 2010. And I was, in fact, in the audience when you were on the Oprah show. It was maybe not quite 10 years ago, but it was when you were doing live coaching. And I was there with my book in my lap. And it was such a powerful conversation. In fact, I think often about one of the metaphors that you shared in that episode where you talked about how we as parents can get into this urge to just make our kids a bit different. If they were just a bit more like this and just a bit less like this, and the metaphor that you offered was that when we're watching a sunset, we don't ever stand before a sunset and say, gosh, this is a great sunset. But if it just had a little more pink and a little less orange, it would just be perfect. And yet we do that with our own children. And that metaphor has stuck with me. I've shared it with clients and friends. Yeah. And, and the tragedy is because that's how we were raised. We look at ourselves as imperfect and flawed, and we don't accept our imperfections and flaws. We think that we should be fixing ourselves constantly. And that's why we live in such a culture of excessive over-perfectionism, overdoing, over-success. Just yesterday, I was with a client who asked me, you know, when is my money going to be feel enough? Ah. When does the drug of success ever stop being a drug? Mm -hmm. And I said to the client that as long as the inner bucket has holes, there will be no drug to complete it. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do to our children. We give them the sense that they are only worthy if, when, then. Mm -hmm. And that's how we live. And we can never just see them in the moment as whole, right? Mm -hmm. And childhood is seen as some big preparation for adulthood. And while it is, we negate its holy, sacred, complete entity as just a place in time. Like, how about childhood just be a preparation for childhood? Oh. And we are missing childhood preparing for tomorrow and then tomorrow we're preparing for the next day and we're never here now. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I see my daughter, she's almost 19. I try to see her with eyes of completion and wholeness. Mm -hmm. And I can see my own ego saying, but you know, what if you don't do this? <laughs> what if you, what if you don't do that? Or what if you're too this or too, th but right now, if she's alive and she's okay, it's perfect. That's right. And if we can just keep remembering that, we would all be happier people. It's beautiful. Yep. And of course, we are at risk of doing to our children what we do to ourselves. How could we relate to them differently than we relate to our own selves? Of course. Yes. Dr. Shafali, we on Reimagining Love, I ask every guest this question. I would love to, um, to dive into this question with you. Are you ready for it? Yes. <laughs> I would love to hear you talk about a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you lately. Well, all my challenges in relationships reflect my own desire from my inner child that feels <laughs> lack mm -hmm. to, so the desire is to be understood, to be validated, to be valid, to be seen. And our authentic self actually doesn't need any of that. Our inner child's needs and inner child lack needs that. So I am always a work in progress to feel whole and complete without 
the validity given by another, mm-hmm. right? That by my child, I want to be valid by my child. I want to be valid by my audience. I want to yes. be valid yes. by considered valid, yeah, mm-hmm. validated. But it's not even just validated. It's to be considered valid. <laughs> like it's that deep, right? right? Like, do I exist, right? And I'm talking ubiquitously. My challenge is everyone's challenge. This is the ubiquitous challenge in relationships is to understand that we are whole and complete without that validation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what my book, A Radical Awakening, is about, is the quest to enter that powerful, authentic self that doesn't need the validation or the sense of validity from another. You know, your books have always landed so deeply for me and kind of reoriented me to who I want to be in the world, how I want to position myself in relationships. But what you've done with A Radical Awakening is revolutionary. It's so powerful. This book is just a gift and it is a gift. It's a gift for women. It's a gift for women, but I also hope and suspect that it's a gift for the men who love women and for the people of all genders, right, who just want to witness and better understand the profound impact of what you call the fog, right? Which is this vast, expansive, pervasive, multi-generational lineage of patriarchy, which is not blaming men. There's nowhere in this book that you are blaming men. There's no finger pointing. It is the fog that impacts every single one of us. You cover so much ground in this work. And so I'm excited to pull forth some of the different elements, and then kind of bring it together with this listener question. It's so interesting. You and I booked this conversation, and the next day this listener question appeared on our website. I was like, well, okay, there we go. There's my question for Dr. Shafali. That's the order we're going to go in here. But start us off with the fog. Talk us through this fog that we are all at risk of living in, and then we all have the opportunity to step out of. Yeah, we women have been raised in this fog of this toxic patriarchy that also includes the men, but I'm talking about us women. And part of this fog is this pervasive sense of lesser thanness, striving to be better, be the skinniest, the prettiest, the whitest, and to look at other women as a competition. And because we have grown up with such scarcity, we are eternally disenfranchised and we don't realize it. You know, when we compete with other women, we are disempowering ourselves. When I see you, and I just want to say this to your audience, this is the first time I'm really, I think, talking to you. Yes, it is. Yeah, but I've always seen your intelligence and I sense your power. I, I pick it up in the in the cybersphere when I see a post or I see your book coming out. or And I just want to say that, I know I'm evolving when I get goosebumps when I see another powerful woman and I want to celebrate her. That's how I know when I'm evolving. Like I see you right now, you you and I can see each other Mm -hmm. and I see a beautiful woman. I could cry Mm -hmm. and I, I see your power and I want to celebrate you. And that's how I know I'm evolving. Like, wow. I feel no competition with you. I feel such, I want to cry. I saw your little, your cute nails and I was like, oh, she's so beautiful and your bracelet. <laughs> and I, That's when I know I'm evolving. So our sisterhood is where our power lies. It's not, my whole book doesn't even talk about men much except with great empathy and compassion. 
It's really about what are we women doing? Why are we giving our power to these poor men who really can't handle our power? <laughs> they can't. And they don't want our power and they shouldn't have our power. And the way we give our power is A, cutting ourselves into shreds yep. and B, cutting each other into shreds. The moment we give it up, meaning if we're getting ready for a party, now when I get ready for a party in my late 40s, I'm thinking, how can I just have a great time and be comfortable? Mm -hmm. In my 30s, it was, how can I be better looking? How can I be better, skinnier? And now I realize that that was the fog. I was set up to think I needed to be better looking and skinnier than other women. Mm -hmm. And now I don't want to be better. I'm happy if another woman is better looking mm -hmm. than me and skinnier than me, which has always happened. But I always was in some fierce competition. And now that I've taken out the competition, I can just go, you know, with my hair uncombed and look as bad as every other man is looking because they're not in competition <laughs> like we are. Right. They are in some other competition. Let's mm -hmm. not pretend they're not in a competition, but they are in some other competition. They are in co a competition, I think, more against themselves mm -hmm. and they're in a competition for power and status. Mm -hmm. But we're in a competition for our basic how we look. Yeah. And you can't ever win that competition, mm -hmm. you know, because you are who you are. There's no striving unless you chop up your face and chop up your body, which is what we women are now resorting to, right? That's right. So we need to end the competition, and that's the fog. Mm -hmm. And waking up out of the fog is entering your worth as a woman and allowing other women to enter their worth and celebrating each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the impact of a culture of dominance, right? That's, that's the message of patriarchy is everything is either you're winning or you're losing, right? Every difference is one is up and one is down. And so, of course, we do it with each other. And we do ourselves a great disservice when we have these like aphorisms like, no, girls don't compete and women don't compete. We do ourselves a disservice when we act as if we don't have that urge because, of course, we have that urge. We've been socialized in that way. And the mindset shift that you're talking about, as you were describing, I just feel this expansion inside of me when we trust that there's enough for all of us, right? That my success and power amplifies yours and yours amplifies mine and that we are right, and truly in sisterhood, which means naming, right? Which means naming the kind of urges to compare because I don't know that it ever goes away. It's just that we, we better manage, we notice, and then we can shift out of it. Yeah, Alexandra, you hit the nail on the head. In my book, A Radical Awakening, I it's uncomfortable for women to read. Yes. Intentionally so. Because I don't let us pretend that we are the weaker and we are the victims and we are so pious. I really call women to call out their shadow, right? Like women will say things like, oh, I like to wear high heels. I'm like, no, you don't. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> you do it because you want to look taller and sexier mm -hmm. and more desirable to catch your, if you're gay, a woman's eye, to, uh, to the other's eye. Mm -hmm. And many times it's the man who you then get upset with when he's sexist and he tells you that you have a nice butt. Mm -hmm. We are full of hypocrites. That's right. And we want to pretend like we're not. And the reason we know we're not, we're not really dying to wear high heels is because when there's no one watching, as was entire 2020 and 2021, all of us women loved being mm -hmm. in our sweaty pants and braless 
and and barefoot. So that is our authentic self. So the other part, and you, and then women will be no, no, I like to get ready, get dressed. Yeah, 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 once in a while. But the compulsion that we have to look good and to be desired comes partly because of our conditioning mm-hmm. of being in this fog that we need to, and we are not good enough if we don't. And I think COVID allowed us a fascinating opportunity to look at that. I mean, I know for myself, I literally wear five same t-shirts and pants every single day. And I'm so excited Mm -hmm. that I never have to get ready much because Mm -hmm. no one can see what I'm wearing under my waist. Down low. (laughs) Correct. Uh Exactly. Uh Uh But that shows us that this is our most comfortable self. Mm -hmm. So what the hell have we been doing? Now, once in a while, of Mm -hmm. course, we all like to be primmed and proper, but the compulsion is what I'm talking about. And the, yes. the obsession. And now we need to have a wider range of responses to going out, to competing, to wanting to look desirable. Now it doesn't have to be just one way. And that's all I'm saying. Right. I'm just saying, let's be open to our real raw vulnerability, that why we do it. And this idea that, oh, we don't compete is a lie. We do compete. Mm-hmm. We're just not willing to own that part of us you know, and the way it comes out is at the mother who's at the drop-off line and she's looking like a rag, we have judgment about her mm-hmm. instead of celebration, mm-hmm. right? The mother who can't handle the toddler at Target, we have judgment about her instead of compassion. Oof. Now we need to have compassion. And, and one more lie we tell ourselves is that we can do it all. Mm-hmm. No, we can't do it all. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to do it all. Nobody does it all. We cannot expect ourselves to give birth to three children and be at the gym and cook food and be conscious and have a career and have great hot sex and feel good about it. No, we have to stop putting pressure on ourselves to check every box. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I used to coach women all the time that if you've just given birth, you need to just allow yourself to be insane for the next six Mm -hmm. years. Like you cannot now want to go to the gym and earn money. Something has to go. And women think that that is a sexist comment and men can have it all. No, men can't have it all either. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They can't give birth. Mm -hmm. Right Mm -hmm. there, they can't have it all. Mm -hmm. So they can't give birth. We can't be out there doing it all either. There has to be a time and a place. I'm not saying don't do it all, but give yourself the ease and the comfort to do things in sequence. You know, for the first 10 years of my daughter's life, I was, I think, 25 pounds overweight and I allowed it. I said, Mm -hmm. I cannot do it all. Mm -hmm. I cannot. Mm -hmm. I need to eat pizza every day if I need to eat pizza every day because I'm exhausted because I was doing a PhD. So I decided I can do two, three things. I cannot do 17. Mm -hmm. And I think women of the modern era are really doing themselves a disservice by trying to do it all. And doing men a disservice. You know, when you were saying men can't have it all either, guess what men can't have? Men can't have a female partner who is doing it all, right? Because if a man has that, the marriage is going to break down because what she's going to be bringing him is crusty, dried out, bitter, angry energy because she's depleted and he won't have her full presence. So part of what, as, as you're saying this, part of what men are being invited into is shedding their own layers of who they think a woman needs to be in order to reflect back to him his own worth and value. 
Right. So your comment right now will definitely create a reaction in women who will say, well, I don't care what the man feels. And we're talking about a stereotypical cisgendered relationship. Yes. But it's true even for gay relationships. Mm-hmm. When each of us are stretching ourselves beyond our capacities, we are doing each other a disservice on top of ourselves. That's what you're really trying to say. Right. When it comes from an utopic, eulogized unrealistic expectation of who we should be and who our partners should be. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and UA Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You know, typically when you write a book, I rush out and I buy it right away. And this one I held off on. I will be honest with you. I held off. And I held off because the thing that I, the question I had about your book is the question I'll ask you right now. Can we as women awaken without blowing up our marriages, especially those of us who are married to men, right? So my fear was, I'm here for the awakening. I think there are lots of ways where I have lived, you know, in an awakened state. I've got lots of women's studies degrees. I've looked at this stuff. I've thought about it. But I think because we are emptying our nest, you and I have both have, our our oldest is away at school and yours is away at school. And so I think because my husband and I are entering this turning point in our own marriage, which we know from the research is an inflection point. A lot of there's a bimodal distribution around divorce, right? A bunch of the divorces that are going to happen, happen within the first seven years. Then the next wave is around this 20-ish year mark as the nest empties. So I think I was especially afraid of your book entering my world at this point in time, because I don't know, you know, what what is this marriage of ours based on? And what does this next chapter look like? And so I went into your book with, you know, kind of holding it as far away as I could for a little while till I knew how am I going to get through this journey? But that is the question I would love to explore with you. What is the journey of awakening and emancipation for a woman, especially a woman who's married to a man whose preference is for the marriage to continue? And maybe we don't get to have that preference, but go ahead. Take take that where you want to take it. It's not easy. So yeah, I fall into the prototypical curve and I never would have imagined in my early 40s that I would be divorced at 49. Never, never, never. Something happens when a woman's kid, oldest, youngest, whatever, grows up and enters teenagehood and becomes autonomous and her identity as a mother is kind of dying, and she's forced to confront that big identity shift, that death, mm-hmm. when you move from mommy to mom, or just driver, wallet, or chauffeur, <laughs> you know, a fancy chauffeur of all her friends. 
you go through a death as a woman. Mm -hmm. I think mothers go through a big pivotal transformation. And part of that transformation is to question, well, who am I now? Mm -hmm. You know, part of a woman's as a mother's identity is so wrapped up with her kids more, I believe, than a man's that when the kid stops needing her, she is now left with the most profound question of who am I now? And a man, I think, confronts it differently uh, around his career, around his achievements. It's different, but it's not as hard hitting, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in the mid 40s, if you follow the typical trajectory, uh, you'll find many women going through this metamorphosis, as I did at 44. I went through a profound, I mean, shocking, cataclysmic metamorphosis that took the wind out of me and took the wind out of my then partner. And I feel so much compassion and empathy for him on some level because he didn't ask for it and he didn't want it. And he was just the same. Mm -hmm. And my mother used to tell me, you cannot blame him. He's the same, mm -hmm. but you've just crossed a threshold that you can't come back to. So my book really, I think, compassionately deals with this question of what do you do when you've turned a corner and you just can't go back into the box of your old marriage and your partner can't meet you where you are and you can't meet them where they are and how to deal with it. I, I took two, three years and I struggled and I mourned a 25-year-old relationship dying to its old form. I mean, it was traumatic for me because I never knew it would happen. But then you have to meet life where it shows up. And I had a choice. Do I dare to go through this door of my awakening and enter a new self? Oh my goodness, it's so damn scary. Mm -hmm. Or do I just go back to the comfort of the old configuration? Because that was good enough too. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when both are kind of okay. I mean, manageable. But I knew that if I'm a teacher and I have to live according to my own word, I have to dare. And part of being a teacher was pushed me, you know, because I knew if I'm teaching other women to be authentic, I goddamn well be try it myself. So I had mm -hmm. to try it on for size. And it was scary and I didn't want to do it. And there was fear of judgment and uh, fear of losing that aura of perfection. You know, mm -hmm. I had a 25 year old kind of successful family and I had to combust that for this new authentic life that I didn't even know what it would bring, but I did it. And let me tell you, it was every bit as scary as one thinks. And I just learned to walk with fear in a different way mm. and uh, cry a whole lot. And I still mm -hmm. cry and have a whole new relationship to the present moment and understand that there's no perfection. There is no ideal state that you then arrive at, but you do arrive at a new relationship with freedom mm -hmm. because you shed so much of that conditioning. You shed so much of that idea of perfectionism. Now I've destroyed any idea of perfection in anyone's eyes. And that is freedom. Right. That is freedom. Right. Now I've destroyed it. So anyone who thinks of Shefali as perfect is not going to think that anymore because they're like, oh, but she's divorced, right? And culture has such a negative idea of divorce. And I'm like, good, good. Yeah. Now I know everyone thinks of me as tarnished and I cannot tell you how freeing <sighs> that is. Mm. It doesn't matter to me anymore. And that is total freedom. Yep. So that's what you get at the end of this. You don't give a F about what people think about right. you. And that's let me tell you, that liberation is all that it's promised to be. It is liberating yeah. and it is freeing.
as you're saying that, I'm thinking about all the ways in which the culture of divorce, the way in which the divorce process is inherently adversarial, there's all of these ways in which it's like stay in the marriage because it's so darn hard to leave it versus stay in the marriage because the marriage is expanding and is evolving and we are choosing again and again to be here, right? So there's so it's sort of like, how will our culture get the results it wants? And our culture, our patriarchal culture, usually tries to do that via control. And one of the ways that control manifests is how ugly and painful the divorce process is, not just in the legal aspect, but as you're saying, the shame, the shame that we bring to people who have gone through divorce. And you share your story with just such courage and clarity and vulnerability. And that is a huge offering. And whether there are women who are going through divorce who will then feel comfort in your words, or whether there are women who are staying in their marriages who then have a chance to stay because they're choosing to stay rather than staying because they're afraid of what's on the other side. That's a very different thing. 100%. The biggest revolution that I stayed within in my mind, I had to stay there in the revolution of this paradigm shift, which is I am not divorcing another human being. I'm divorcing my own inauthentic past, my own Mm. inauthentic relationship with myself. That's really what I was divorcing. And that's what divorce really is. And we have it all wrong. And of course, marriage is mainly about possession, control, and ownership. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called wedlock and household (laughs) and all these words for like control. And most of us will stay in the marriage out of fear. And that is the tragedy. But that's okay. That's where people are. And that's fine. It's okay to have compassion for yourself. You know, if 60% of Western marriages end up in divorce, you know another 25 are about to get a divorce mm-hmm. and have, haven't just gotten the courage. And so now we're left with the last 15. And there's no shame in these numbers. When a relationship outgrows itself and when the marriage is done in terms of that cycle, evolution demands that we get out of the stronghold of possession and control. We should not have contracts that are legally legislated and religiously bound. Mm -hmm. But that's how culture has us by the jugular. It's God and the law. Now you're really effed up. You're not only shamed by God, the legal situation and the divorce culture and the lawyers. You know, I told my divorce attorney that you work for me. Right. You will not run the ship. And if you're not okay with it, then we don't have to continue. And he made me sign an agreement to cover his ass. He literally had made me sign it because I wasn't letting him do his typical job. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, because your typical job Mm -hmm. is to create schism and hatred and bitterness. And my job is to work for the highest good of all. So if that means I quote unquote lose, it's okay because there is no loser here. I win when my partner, ex-partner wins. I win because my daughter will win. I win because they win. So he made me sign this because he was like, this is the worst fight ever. You're not even letting me talk. I said, yeah, I just need your stamp. And because I got this. So we have to understand that culture sets up all institutions, religion, education, marriage, divorce, and parenthood to be cultures and institutions based on control and fear. All of them. Mm -hmm. Especially parenthood. Mm -hmm. Like talk about parenthood being an institution of control and fear. Mm -hmm. So once you begin to awaken, you realize that, you know, this is not 
personal. This is the way it is set up. Mm -hmm. And part of the maverick journey of a spiritual warrior is to bust this and to teach. And that's what I've used this lesson to teach others and to have great compassion for exes, for current partners. It has nothing to do with whether you're married or divorced. That is just a label. What it has to do with is are you living your most authentic self? And sometimes the most authentic self is to stay Mm -hmm. in the quote-unquote negative marriage. Mm -hmm. It's okay. You know, I teach women to have compassion for themselves, that it's okay. Sometimes we need to stay because we can't leave. That's okay. That's right. Uh, But just let's do it with awareness and not under the hypocrisy of a lie. You know, once I got divorced, I realized, wow, how trapped I was and identified with the idea that I was married. You know, once I'm out of it, and now, you know, uh, the other day my daughter asked me, you know, would you ever get married again? And I said, no, I don't need to. I don't need the label anymore. It doesn't matter to (laughs) me what people think of me, and I don't need a label to prop me up anymore. I don't, and therefore the institution of marriage has lost its allure. It's fizzled out. It's faded. I've dissolved the power that that label has on me, and I don't need a label anymore. And I hope I told her, you don't need a label. And she's like, well, I don't know. Maybe I will get married. I was mm-hmm. like, well, then I feel sorry for you that you need a label because you really don't, Maya. You don't need to be married mm-hmm. if you're married to yourself. Mm-hmm. So this is where we're heading. And it, it will take a revolution. It'll take strong women to lead the way. And there is a place, you know, uh, old paradigms speak of fear. Well, children will grow up, you know, feral and wild. Right. No, children will not. Children grow up feral and wild because of parental unconsciousness. <laughs> they don't grow oh, up feral and wild. Oh my gosh, that's right. But this is the new paradigm. And this is what I hope my book, Erratic Awakening, will hawken into the world is a bold new way of reimagining love as your mm-hmm. podcast is named, so that we can all enter freedom and compassion. You know, I have so much compassion for people who are married, <laughs> you know, and not for the ones who are divorced, let me tell you, because no one who goes through this fire will be lesser in worth because Uh, this journey is so I'm only only have compassion for those who haven't experienced it I'm like oh you poor married people you don't know what it's like to be on the (laughs) other side I feel bad for you because (laughs) let me tell you I was with the same man for 25 years you know I was fully in the institution of marriage and how unfortunate for me that I was so identified Mm -hmm. with it you know Mm -hmm. and and now that I'm away from that identification I can see how arrogant I used to be, how haughty I used to be, and how much I needed it. I needed to be called a married woman, you know? And now once I'm out of it, I go, go, you didn't need that at all? So these are just labels. And the ones who are attached to the labels are only attached because they don't know any different, because culture hasn't allowed us to know a different way. Beautiful. I remember going to see the Dalai Lama um, in Chicago years and years ago. And I remember going in with this question in my mind for the Dalai Lama, like, what are we going to do with the institution of marriage? Are we going to tear it down? Is there a new vision for it? Like what? And, and my college students, you know, this is the coolest thing about our kids' generation. They come in my class at Northwestern is called Marriage 101. I use the word marriage a handful of times. It really is about bringing relational self-awareness into intimate partnership, however that looks. But the clever name that the course has had for 20 plus years is Marriage 101. What is so cool is 20 years into teaching this course, I have students who come in with deep questions about what is this institution, right? This institution, like all institutions, has done harm. It has left out 
LGBTQ plus people for many, many years until, you know, moments ago in our country. And it has perpetuated, it's been a vehicle for perpetuating patriarchy. So my students are sitting with questions about what are we going to do with it? Do we burn it to the ground? Do we build something else? Can it be reformed? And I love those questions. I love that 20 years ago, I didn't know how to ask those questions, despite by that point having not one, but two gender studies degrees, right? So we are, I mean, your book is catching us and meeting us at a time when we get to ask these questions of all of our institutions of why is it here? Who does it serve? And what else is possible beyond this thing that we have thought had to be the way that it is? Yes, yes. I say yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I'm so honored to have been married in the bubble of it and loved it. I was so the good wife. I mean, I'm telling you, my, my ex may not agree, but I think he would if he was honest. I was fully the good wife and the good mother. And I did those roles with such zealous earnestness. And I'm so happy I did that because now I get to do this, which is the non-role of wife and the non-mother role. And I get to do this with beauty. And we get to see when you awaken that neither fill you up. The filling has to come from a deep wellspring of connection to the universe, to yourself. It has nothing to do with the role or the non-role. It comes from deep within. Mm -hmm. And I really challenge women to read my book, A Radical Awakening, because I think I was gentle. I hope you didn't feel Mm -hmm. it was too brutal. With gentle compassion, I lead us to a new way of living, of loving, of being, I have so much compassion for my old self. I have so much compassion for my ex. I have so much compassion for all of us because all that we are on our worst day is deeply conditioned. Mm -hmm. That's all. Mm -hmm. You know, the one who just committed murder is just deeply conditioned. You know, the, the white supremacist is just so ignorant because they're deeply conditioned. Mm -hmm. And the only way out is not to hate them, is to compassionately understand and break through the freaking conditioning, which is your and my work in this world. That's right. That's right. Dr. Trolley, before I let you go, we got to talk about Tina. So we have this listener question that comes to us from Tina in Vancouver. And here's what she writes. She uses she, her pronouns. She says, I have always felt like an outcast in my friend groups, especially when I'm the only unmarried one. I've always lived my life following my heart instead of the pressure of timeline, age, or conventions, and I love myself for that. But it is a lonely road, especially when everyone around me is married and with kids. I often feel alone and find it hard to navigate friendships. I have lost friends because they expect to be celebrated for their engagements, bachelorette bridal parties, weddings, baby showers, etc., And yet when it comes to me, I feel my achievements are diminished and dismissed as if milestones outside the conventional route are not to be recognized. And the only time when they would celebrate or remember me is when it's my birthday, not even when I purchase a new home while working on my master's program while working full time. I always try to do my best to understand their perspectives and stressors, but I feel I'm always expected to do the understanding the reflecting, and more understanding. I feel exhausted and alone and often disregarded. How can I feel less alone in this process as I continue to follow my heart and pursue freedom? Wow. So what I would tell Tina is that she is brave. 
she is doing it the right way, but now she's filled with doubt because culture is slamming its expectations on her. And she needs to hear it from a woman who's been there, done that, and come on another side of where she's at, which is single, is to to understand that culture will keep trying to put her in a box and those boxes will stifle her and limit her. There is no box that will give her a sense of validity. So she needs to keep gaining that validity from herself as she is doing. And it's hard to stay there. You know, you can have the insight and you can have the bravery, but it's hard to continue being in that state. And that's why women like us exist to help her Mm -hmm. to understand all the women like us who can teach her. No, you stay on your path and allow your contemporaries to be in the box, but you don't have to be in the box. You are ahead of your time. Yeah. Yeah. It's so powerful what she's saying, you know, in her question is this reminder that when women celebrate each other, it is almost always because of a milestone that is related to the role of wife or the role of mother, right? In in sisterhood, we celebrate these role-aligned kinds of milestones, and we miss, because of the fog, right? We miss or we're blind to other kinds of milestones that are not aligned with those roles. Like she's saying, I bought a house while I was in grad school and while I was working full-time, and nobody noticed. And her girlfriends didn't notice, not because they suck or they're mean or they're trying to hurt her, but they don't notice because they can't see it through the fog, right? We as a culture have not created tradition around those kinds of non-role-bound milestones. Like that just blows my mind. Yes. It's the limitations of a conditioned culture that only has certain boxes on its checklist and it's time to tear that checklist. You know, Alexandra, with your students, There's a section in my book where I bust the institution of love, marriage, and divorce. You should read the parts of that and get feedback from me about how the younger generation views it. Because because of social media, one of the benefits is that our youth now are shifting out of the boxes. So it'll be fascinating to see how, you know, two generations down enter the institution of love, marriage, and divorce. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's coming. The shift is coming. That's why my book is on time. It just is. I mean, I could feel the pulse that, oh my goodness, like, and I almost have to ask, am I doing this because of the pulse is calling it or really my own real divorce, you know? But mm-hmm. what you teach and your podcast and your course, this is the time because mm-hmm. it's at the cusp of a new paradigm shift and marriage is going to definitely re- imagine itself, if not go entirely defunct very soon. It's interesting because, I mean, I suppose it's always the way that it is. Like as this surge of authenticity, questioning why things are the way they are, there is also the immense counter pressure, right? Like look at the law that just was passed in Texas and now it's going to happen in Mississippi, right? These laws that are just like, absolutely not. You will not control your own body, woman. We will continue to control you. So it's like the there's the push forward and then there's that counter pressure. Yes. And it'll take a few generations down, but it takes women like us from the old paradigm to create a new way of looking at it. And this is, again, not about getting a divorce right? or, getting a ma- or get into, right. entering marriage. This is about understanding that the label makes no difference to your path of evolution and you can choose 
to do it in a new way. You don't have to do it legislated by contracts and legalities and religion. Mm -hmm. I told my daughter, have the damn wedding and let's have a lot of cake and get all the gifts, but don't legislate your marriage. What I noticed in my divorce that pissed me off the most in the patriarchy was my decision was to be sanctioned. The judge had to approve of my autonomy and my sovereign choice. (laughs) That's where I felt anger, you know? And I was like some freaking old paradigm thinking traditionalist sitting on some bench and some cloak has the power over my life. Mm -hmm. That is where the toxic patriarchy has us under control. And we don't realize it. We're 25 and 28 and walking down the aisle in our little dress thinking we're so fancy. We don't realize what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're giving our power away to an unknown stranger. Who knows if that will happen? But Mm -hmm. if it were to happen, like it happened in my life, I don't even know who that freaking lawyer, the judge was who signed and authorized my sovereign decision. And that's when I just, I was like, I will not, if I have the power, allow my daughter to do this. But she doesn't know. And she's going to be ignorant and she will want to. And I will have to let her because it's her life. But that is where, how deep the toxic patriarchal tentacles go. Uh-huh. And what if that, that judge decided that he wasn't going to authorize it? Uh-huh. Who the freak has that power over anyone? Uh-huh. That is how deep toxic patriarchies. And we don't realize when we're going down the aisle, what we're really doing. We're handing over power to some stranger in the future. Mm-hmm. And that is what this revealed to me the most, you yeah. know? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's interesting because you're making me think about ways in which like sort of romanticism, I don't usually connect romanticism and patriarchy, but there's a way in which romanticism is like the blindfold, right? The patriarchy puts on is like, no, no, no. It's just love. Focus on the love. Focus. Keep your eyes on the love and the dress and the hashtag that you're going to create and all the beautiful photos you're going to create. Like stay over here and focus on that because love is the answer to everything. And there's a way in which that simplicity, it's that kind of like rescue saved by love idea that then blinds us to let's just be smart. And being smart doesn't mean marriage equals bad, it means let's look at the kinds of agreements we're making and where we're putting our power. That's very interesting what you're saying. Love is an institution. It's a commodity. It's it's commercial. And it is such an insidious, evil message about love. And the romantic idea around love is entirely bullshit. And People don't like it when I say this, <laughs> but that is how, how diamonds are sold. Mm-hmm. The whole diamond industry is a toxic, perverted enslavement of poor sure. brown people and the, sure. the ravaged Africa. I mean, it, I could go on and on. Yep. It is so sick. I don't wear any ring. I've never worn mm-hmm. a ring in my life. And because I, I know it's a hurt. Sorry if you're wearing a ring, but it's, I am. <laughs> yeah, because you fell into sure. the idea. Sure. And what is a ring? It is an ornamentation of possession. Right. And you want to wear it because you want to show that you're possessed and that mm-hmm. they're possessed. And we are in a. And the diamond industry has laughed its way to its its bazillion dollar consumer 
fantasy of that women need a diamond. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I could vomit. Sorry, not at your ring, but just at the institution. Yeah. We are being puppeteered by invisible strings and we don't even know it. So my book combusts the fog and takes out the fog and, and says, no, please see who you are what you're doing mm -hmm. and the bullshit you're adhering to in the name of culture's entrapment of you. And you don't even know you're playing right into it. Right. Well, and we're going to wrap this up, even though I could sit here and talk to you for about the next six hours. It's you're speaking to the intersection of racism and sexism and capitalism. I all amplify and benefit each other. It's religion, patriarchy, capitalism, sexism, yeah. racism, racism, yeah. racism, and the subjugation of women and the earth and mm -hmm. poor people and brown people. I that's mean, right. it's all of it right. is in the book. And, and until we wake up, and that's why I call it a radical awakening, and that's why it will not be a popular book. I'm shocked it's even the, as popular as it is because <laughs> it demands someone to be willing to see through the fog. And uh -huh. the fog is lovely because you don't have to look too far and you don't have mm -hmm. to think too much and you're just led, right? So this book is for those who don't want to be led mm -hmm. and puppeteered anymore. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, and for all the work you do, you brilliant, wise, maverick woman yourself. And I'm so impressed by you. And I just mm -hmm. want to tell your listeners how much you have to, how much value you offer to the world. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. I tell us, tell our listeners where you want them to find you. Like, what is the next best? I mean, first of all, listeners, you really do need to go to bookshop.org and get yourself a copy of Dr. Shafali's book, even though you're right, it will. But you know what? I tell you, it is, it's a difficult book to read, but you are the gentlest of teachers. So yes, you are asking us to look at some uncomfortable things. We're peeling back layers, but you do it in a way where we can be both challenged and safe. And so I think that you are, if somebody has to deliver this message, you are just a wonderful mouthpiece for it. You are as, a gent as gentle a teacher as you need to be while you ask us to look at some things that are pretty painful and complicated. Right. I hold you on the sword, but I put a cushion on it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> where, so where can people find you? Yeah, so they can go to my Instagram, which uh, is d at doctor, doctor spelled out, Shefali, or mm -hmm. they can go to my website, drshefali.com, and, uh, you know, get all my, I have courses. I, I'm really a conscious parenting teacher as well. So people who are parents who want to learn a new way to parent can take my courses and uh, awaken. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you, Shefali. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Dr. Shafali, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You can check out Dr. Shafali's new book, A Radical Awakening, linked in the show notes. It really challenged a lot of the ideas I hold about marriage, womanhood, and self-awareness in all of the best ways, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you as well to the listener who submitted this question, which gave Dr. Shafali and me the chance to delve deeply into those themes and to ask difficult questions. As always, thank you for listening to the show, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. 
Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love, 